mind. You may be seated. Please open with me now in God's Word uh, to the book of Revelation. Once again, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Today we are looking at the fourth letter out of the seven letters to the churches. Revelation chapter 2. In verses 18 and 19, we've already considered the letters to the churches at Ephesus, at Sardis, and at Pergamum. Today, this fourth letter is the letter that is directed to the church at Thyatira. Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 through 29, the church at Thyatira. This is the longest of these seven letters. It goes from verses 18 down through verse 29, and let's now hear God's word uh, together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends this reading in God's Word. Might the Lord help us now to understand his Word. So let's ask him to do that in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, uh, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you especially as we would turn to your word today. And we pray, Lord, that we would be given ear to hear, ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, that this relevant word from the one who is king and head of the church, Lord, we pray that we would put these things into practice. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. The first three churches that we uh, considered, the churches in Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamum, were churches that belonged to three of the most prominent cities in Asia Minor. But today's church, the church in the city of Thyatira, was a church that was located in the smallest of these 
uh, seven cities. It was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. At the time, the population would have been no more than 25,000 people. And yet they received the longest of all of the letters. It's the longest letter for the church that was probably the smallest. And it reminds us simply that God is intensely concerned about small congregations. He's concerned about large congregations, but small ones as well. Even West Springfield Covenant Community Church. And he's concerned about congregations that are not only in the big and prominent and influential cities of the world, but also about congregations that are very far away from the seat of power. Lord Jesus Christ rules as king and head of the church, even West Springfield Covenant Community Church, located in western Massachusetts. And he has words to say to them, and words, these words, as we've said throughout these uh, two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation, are words that apply not only to the church in the first century, but to the church in every age. So as we hear these things, we need to take this as the message of the risen Christ uh, to us today. Well, we're going to consider four things out of our passage today, four things that Christ does for this church in Thyatira. First of all, Christ commends the church's growing Christian service. He commends the church's growing Christian service. Secondly, Christ exposes Jezebel's dangerous teaching. He exposes Jezebel's dangerous teaching. Thirdly, thirdly, Christ denounces the church's sinful toleration. He denounces the church's sinful toleration. And then lastly, Christ motivates the church to be faithfully intolerant to the end. He motivates the church to be faithfully intolerant to the end. Those four points, okay, he uh, first of all commends the church's Christian, growing Christian service. He exposes Jezebel's dangerous teaching, he denounces the church's sinful toleration, and lastly, he motivates the church to remain faithfully intolerant to the end. Those four things, first of all, Christ commends the church's growing Christian service. I will return to that opening statement in verse 18 a bit later, but for now I want you to first of all see the way that Christ commends the church in Verse 19, like every one of the seven churches, except the one in Laodicea, Christ finds something to speak well of, some area in which they are exhibiting faithfulness. He says to them, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And here, Christ Jesus lists many of the most basic Christian virtues in fundamental areas of Christian living. And he says to the church, I know that you have proved exemplary in these areas. It was a loving church, an active church, 
a zealous church. It was the kind of church that if you would have walked into the congregation in Thyatira, you would have thought this is an active church. This church is alive. They knew that being a Christian wasn't a passive activity, that it called for a life of love, of service, of zealous activity for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. In that sense, it was kind of the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Remember that church that had abandoned its first love. Jesus even says that they were a people who had persevered in this for a period of time. That's what patience here means. They hadn't lost heart in doing good. And in fact, just the opposite, they were actually growing in these areas. As for your works, these latter works exceed the first. What a mighty commendation this is. What a key to the Christian life is here revealed. You know, one of the keys to not regressing or digressing in your Christian walk is to be progressing in it. The Christian life is a life that should have continual growth in it. We need to hold the course, hold fast, but not merely hold fast, but rather also constantly moving forward, learning new things from God's Word, committing ourselves to areas of godly living that we had before ignored. To love others better. To pray more consistently. To give a greater proportion of our income to Christian work. To seek to do more good in the name of Jesus. That is the mark of the believer. Oh, blessed is the Christian of whom it can be said, your latter works exceed your first. And so as children grow into teenagers and teenagers into young adults, those in young adulthood move into middle age and from middle age we uh, move into old age, in the Christian life along every step of that journey, we ought to say, Oh Lord, help me not to slow down. Oh Lord, help me not to do less work for Jesus Christ. But rather we say, Lord, might my sphere of, uh, might, might, Lord, my sphere of labor increase? Now, perhaps as you grow older, you have less energy. Okay? Life as a whole is slowing down a little bit. Okay, that's understandable. But nonetheless, so we might not serve Christ in exactly the same ways that we did as younger, but we ought not to serve him any less. We ought not to serve him any less, but rather saying, Lord, until you take me into glory, might I ever be growing, ever progressing, always moving forward in my service to you. That's how Christ addresses this church. And he finds this to commend. Now, we're going to notice in just a moment, Christ is going to heavily criticize the church at Thyatira. But I think there's something in his, in even Christ's example of how he addresses the church. Before rebuking them, he sees something here legitimate to commend them for. I think we ought to learn that even in our dealings with uh, one another. That even when we have to criticize others, might we notice, first of all, the good and fruitful things in their lives and commend them, sincerely commend them for those things. I think that's a lesson for parents in dealing with your children. 
It's a lesson for the way that we interact with one another as well. Christ commends this church in Thyatira for their growing Christian service. But now secondly, I want us to see uh, this point, that Christ exposes Jezebel's dangerous teaching. Christ exposes Jezebel's dangerous teaching. Beginning in verse 20, the Lord Jesus is going to say, but I do have this against you. And here he's going to expose something very dangerous that was happening in the church. Now, to understand what was happening, we first need to understand something about the town of uh, Thyatira. Thyatira was a kind of commercial town. Uh, um, It wasn't necessarily a politically influential town. Uh, It wasn't a manufacturing center. Uh, But nonetheless, it was a, a... a commercial town in a lot of ways. And it was a town in which business was done. And if you wanted to have any success in business in this town, you had to belong to a trade guild. Think of a kind of labor union in our day. And they had them for every profession. We have from other uh, sources. We learn of some of these trade guilds in Thyatira. There were trade guilds for wool and for leather works and for pottery. Uh, there, were, uh, there was uh, a, a guild for bakers and for bronze works. There were guilds for linen workers and uh, those who worked in dyes and clothing manufacturers. In fact, the only other place that we read of Thyre Tyre in the scriptures is in connection with Lydia, that first convert in Europe in the city of Philippi. She was, you'll remember, a seller of purple, and she was from Thyatira. She had emigrated from Thyatira across into Macedonia. Okay, and so she was one who then later became a, who, who had become a Christian, but was originally from Thyra, uh, from Thyatira. So it was a heavily commercial uh, city. But as part of the commercial life in Thyatira, like the other towns that we've looked at, it was uh, greatly influenced uh, by idolatrous religious practices. So in other words, if you belong to a guild, each guild had their own deity. And as part of life in that guild, uh, you had to make sacrifices to the deity. You had to engage in feasts uh, that honored that deity. And then you had to stick around for the party afterwards uh, in which uh, grossly immoral sexual practices uh, were done as a way of honoring that deity. And if you wanted to be a part of the uh, warp and woof of life in Thyatira, if you wanted to be accepted, and if you wanted to have a business in Thyatira, you needed to engage in all of these things. Now, Christians had been taught that they should not be a part of this, that these things were immoral. And as a result of this, Christians were often ostracized from society. They found it difficult to make a living. Well, with that as background, enter uh, now the teaching of one of the members of this church in Thyatira. And we're told of this one in verse 20. It says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There was a woman who began to teach 
both formally and informally. Now, her name was likely not Jezebel, but that's the description of her, in keeping with that uh, Old Testament woman. You'll remember who Jezebel was from the Old Testament, that Sidonian princess who was married to King Ahab. And in the days of Elijah, okay, the prophet tried to tempt uh, the people of Israel to practice idolatry and to practice sexual immorality. She was a, a powerful and influential woman. And so was this woman in the church in Thyatira. And she began to gain a foothold in this church. And she began to teach certain things. Namely, it seems that she began to teach that after all, you don't have to be as strict. As these Christians have always been saying that you're strict. There's another way. You can engage. You can be involved in some of the practices of these guilds and some of the other practices in the town in which you live. Okay, And she told them, you don't have to stand out so much from culture. You can go to the feasts. Don't worry about the sacrifices. Don't worry about these uh, sexual practices. And, and we don't know for sure how she justified these things. Perhaps she said as we saw last week in the teaching of the Nicolaitans, uh, perhaps she said, uh, well, you're saved by grace. Hey, and if you, uh, you can live how you like because it doesn't affect your standing with God. Just do what you like. It's going to be okay. Or perhaps she said as well, well, the things that we're talking about, those belong to the body. What you do with the body isn't that important. It's your mind that matters. It's your spirit. That would have been a form of Gnosticism. So we don't know exactly the way that it was that she taught, and likely she was very subtle in her teaching. But the point is, the end result of it all was that the church was beginning to look more like the world. Moral standards had changed. A false teaching had begun to corrupt the church in Thyatira. And the source of this false teaching was this woman Jezebel. And we're told that she was one who called herself a prophetess. She claimed a certain authority from God. Okay, It's not just a 21st century phenomenon that people go about and claim that their heretical teaching has uh, uh, the, the authority of God behind it. God told me to say such and such. Well, that's what she was doing. She was claiming the authority of God and apparently uh, attracting a kind of follower, following. And what is more, uh, she was claiming that her teaching really put you in touch with the deeper things of God. We find this actually a little later in verse, uh, um, uh, verse 24. It talks there about of, of those who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. And it likely is referring to what she was saying. She was probably saying, well, I'm going to teach you the deeper things of God. And in reality, Paul, or, uh, in, in reality uh, here, uh, the Lord Jesus is saying, no, these are actually the deep things of Satan. But it was a, a new way. I think one writer, Herman Hooksema, I think has rightly understood that what was going on here in Thyatira was a kind of what we might call false mysticism. There was a certain, uh, it was a church that was characterized by a kind of ardent and abundant spiritual life of, a, of it seems, a, of a kind of emotional type, but it had become severed from the objective criterion and test of the Word of God. 
It was a woman who had put her own ideas forward as, as offering greater insight, a greater light, and people were going along with it. It stands as a warning to the church today, does it not? It stands as a warning to the church today that the Lord Jesus Christ himself despises teaching, false teaching, that on the one hand lowers the standard of Christian morality and makes the church look more like the world, and also that sets up certain people and ideas on par or even above the teaching of the Word of God. And friends, these are the directions that false teaching so often takes in the church. It's a constant tendency within the church to lower the standards of holiness, to erase the church's distinctiveness from the world, and to do so not on the basis of God's word, but on the basis of something else. So you'll hear, even in our own day, a church says, well, we need a new way of doing church. A new way. The old ways were insufficient. We need something new, something different. Or you'll, or you'll hear, we need to be open to where the Spirit is leading us. Well, where is the Spirit tied to? We need to say the Spirit's always tied to His Word. That's where. But often by that, they, they mean to go in a different direction from what the Word of God is saying. Okay? Uh, or people will say, we need a church that is more relevant to 21st century needs. So in other words, the course in, of the church, the life of the church is more determined by what they perceive the culture needs and the culture is saying rather than by what Christ demands in the Word of God. Or, you'll say, uh, or someone will say, we need a church that reflects the surrounding culture in which we live. Or you'll hear even people say, well, what we really need, and again, it's often to distinguish it from what the church was, what we really need is a grace-centered community. Now, praise God for the grace of God. We do need the grace of God to be central, but never in a way that displaces the holiness of God or the holy lives to which God's people are called. And that's often what is meant by it. So, dear friends, we need to beware of a kind of teaching, a kind of mentality that comes in and says that the church needs to be something other than what the Word of God calls the church to be. The Word of God needs to be the mooring for the church, the objective standard and the criteria by which we live, dear friends. We need to always beware of the teaching, uh, strange new teachings uh, within the church, which often aren't so new uh, after all. There was this Jezebel who was leading the church astray. Subtle teaching, no doubt influential teaching but dangerous, dangerous teaching within the church. And so Christ here exposes, exposes the dangerous teaching of this Jezebel. And we also need to be aware of that. But now thirdly, thirdly, what we see now is that Christ, uh, the third thing is that Christ now uh, denounces the church's 
sinful toleration. Christ denounces the church's sinful toleration. It appears that Jezebel was leading this movement in the church, this kind of mysticism. But the great sin of the church was not only that some were going along with it, but that, some, but that the church as a whole seemed to tolerate this teaching in their midst. Do you notice that? I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. That they tolerate her. They allowed her to continue. To continue to spread such things. To teach these things within the church. And to influence members in the church. And what they should have said was that in the name of Christ our Lord, we will not stand for teaching that goes contrary to what he's revealed to us by the authority of the apostles. And they should have practiced church discipline, even excommunication on those who are spreading godlessness in the church of Jesus Christ. Now that seems harsh, but the point is, is that it's not. It's not harsh, but rather sometimes it's exactly the very thing that the Lord Jesus Christ calls the church to. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, that God intends for the church to be known by its intolerance. The church should not tolerate false teaching and uh, immorality that strikes at Jesus Christ and his glory. But we ought not to be. And so some, again, think that, well, Christians need to be those who are always comforting, always encouraging, always affirming. But that is simply not the case. When there is error present that dishonors Christ and that endangers souls, the church ought to be just the opposite. We ought to oppose error and confront sin and denounce ungodliness. And that needs to happen in the church of Jesus Christ uh, today. There's at times a kind of plague of niceness, <laughs> even within uh, the church. And it can have a destructive effect upon the church in our, own, in our own day. You see, as I said earlier, this is kind of the opposite of the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had abandoned its first love, but you'll remember they did not tolerate false teaching in their midst. And Christ commended them for that. And so it should have been the case with this church uh, here as well. They should have been called to a vigilant intolerance of theological error. And friends, this is why it is such a blessing to have a church that is a confessional church. Where we say, we believe that the confessional statements of this church Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms are a faithful and accurate rendering of what the scriptures teach. And dear friends, all of the ministers, all of the elders, all of the deacons within the Presbyterian Church in America are held to account according to these confessional documents. It's when we just examined Joe Ruiz and Chris Modzanowski, it was uh, in accord with these confessional standards of our church. 
Now, some people might say, they say, oh, the, the, the PCA, it's so narrow. Or sometimes the accusation is made, oh, the church is too litigious. It needs to be more tolerant, not always looking out for error, not always uh, heresy hunting. Dear friends, praise the Lord that we have people that are looking out for error. And that we are trying to cut off heresy at its roots. Because that is soul damning and destroying to the church of Jesus Christ. It is a blessing to be part of a theologically aware church. That thinks it is vitally important to remain uh, uh, tied to the confessional standards uh, of, of the church. What a blessing that is. And I hope that we always see it that way. Oh, dear friends, we need to be more than theologically orthodox. We need to be loving. We need to be active. We need to be zealous. But we ought never to be less than theologically orthodox. Those two things are not pitted against one another. But rather, it is theological orthodoxy then that is that, that leads to a heart inflamed with love for God and Christian service. That's what, that's what the church of Jesus Christ uh, needs. And might it be so that we would be found to be uh, faithfully intolerant of such uh, false teaching. And you see, that's what the Lord Jesus is saying. He's saying that the church, as it were, ought to, be, ought to, ought to mirror the activity of Christ himself within the church. Notice what Christ says, verse uh, 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. That's not an image of Christ that we often think of, but it's a true image of Christ. He is a judge. We don't know exactly the form that these judgments take. Sometimes Christ does judge, mete out judgments in the course of this life. Sometimes sickness or even the death of an individual is a judgment which Christ is placing on them. Not always, it's hard to, hard to know always from our perspective what is. But this we do know, that Christ meets out judgments in this life, but then surely, at the end of this age, He will destroy those who have taught falsely. And we need to remember that we stand before Christ the judge, and so the church similarly. With Jesus Christ at the king and, as king and head of the church, He's king and head. And so even as he does not tolerate evil within the church, so ought we uh, not to tolerate it either. False teaching ought to be uh, cast out of the church of, of Jesus Christ. Let me just put it this way, by way of illustration. Okay? I wonder how many of you would be tolerant with somebody who is trying to kidnap your child. Or how many of you are tolerant with a thief? Or tolerant with a murderer. We say no. We take decisive action. Right? Why? Because lives are in danger. There are people that need to be protected. 
So, dear friends, ought we never to be tolerant with false teaching in the church of Jesus Christ? Because false teaching will not only harm the body, but it will damage the soul as well. And it will lead people far from the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we be ever vigilant uh, in our intolerance within the church? But now this moves us fourthly and finally then. I want us to see that Christ then motivates the church to be faithfully intolerant to the end. Beginning at verse 24. It says, To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching and who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And here he's encouraging the rest of them to remain faithful, to remain vigilant, to not give up the truth which they already have in Jesus Christ. He's saying, I don't lay other burdens on you. And certainly don't go the opposite direction of creating man-made rules and entering into a kind of legalism, but rather simply hold fast no matter what come, hold fast to the the gospel that was faithfully delivered uh, to the church. And so the same call comes to us also to be vigilant against error and to hold fast. You know, it's no small accomplishment to hold fast to this truth. Amidst the pressures that we face in our day and age, pressures to give in, pressures to compromise. And at times, our children are going to grow up and are going to leave the church because they're going to say, you're too strict and you're too narrow. And at times, the world is going to, is going to mock us and is going to make fun of us and say, the church is so old-fashioned. Why are you that way? Can't you get up with the times? And dear friends, amidst such pressure, we dare not give in, but always remain faithful to the gospel, to the teaching of the scriptures, that we would be a Bible-centered church until Jesus Christ come again. And he gives an encouragement to this kind of faithful endurance. He says, if you do this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, verse 26 To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Uh, Actually, this quotation is from the second psalm. Uh, That psalm where the Father promises the Son, the nations for his inheritance, and the ends of the earth uh, for his possession. But the point is is that even now as Jesus Christ rules and reigns and is building this kingdom that will never pass away, if you are faithful to Jesus Christ, if you're found on Jesus' side, you have some part in His rule. What does that mean? Well, it means that as the kingdom grows in this world, even now, you are an instrument used in His hand for the building of that kingdom. Through your efforts, this kingdom comes. But also the promise is that someday uh, when uh, this new heavens and new earth comes at Jesus' return, that we will rule with him, alongside of him, uh, for all eternity. What an extraordinary promise this is. That in some sense we are going to share in the rule of of Jesus Christ. What a promise that is. Because again, the church so often in this life feels beleaguered. We, We feel threatened on every side 
But in reality, to remain fast and faithful to him is to rule alongside of Jesus Christ. But not only do we share in Christ's governing of the world, we also experience Christ's presence in our lives also. And that's the point of verse uh, 28, where he says, And I will give him the morning star. What is this morning star? Well, here we ought to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. Here is the key verse. Revelation 22 and verse 16 says that I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I, Jesus says, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And so here, when Jesus says that I will give to this one who keeps Jesus' works to the end, I will give him the morning star. It simply means that the Christian gets Christ himself. In the same way that in an earlier letter, we were told that the one who conquers gets to eat of the tree of life. Who's the tree of life but Jesus himself? Or that the one who conquers receives the hidden manna we saw. Who's the hidden manna? But it's Christ himself. So now to this one who conquers, he will give the morning star. What is the morning star but the Lord Jesus Christ himself? And what this means to the believer is that as we oppose the world and oppose false teaching and stand for the truth with all of the unpopularity and the heartache that this brings... Dear friends, we are given as a reward Jesus Christ Himself. And friends, that's the chief motivation for faithfulness. You can take everything else from me, but if I have Jesus, it's all I need. I have Him. I belong to Him. That's our goal, to to see Christ Jesus, to know Christ Jesus. And when that happens, the world and its smile fades in the background. And we see only Christ. And isn't that the point of these letters as a whole? It's to look at Jesus Christ amidst the faithfulness of this world. And all of that takes us really back to the very introduction of this letter. Verse 18. How is Christ described at the very introduction of this letter? We were told that it's the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Again, borrowing from the language of that vision in Revelation chapter 1, here it reminds us that standing over the church amidst all of its struggles, standing over that church is none other but the ascended and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And He has eyes like a flame of fire that sees everything that goes on in His church. And He has feet like burnished bronze ready to, uh, uh, to accomplish judgment But it is His church. It's His church. And so we keep our eyes focused upon Him. And everything that we do, from the way that we worship, to the things that we preach, to the way that we live our lives, needs to have everything to do with the Son of God and His glory in the world. We exist for His sake. And He is our King and He is our Lord. And we never, dare never take our eyes off of that. In the name of anything, 
For, 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 it's Jesus Christ that we belong to. We are his church. And might we always, always remember that. And might we be found faithful in these things to the end. Let's now turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this call that goes out even to the church of Jesus Christ today to tolerate no unfaithful Jezebels in her midst. And Lord, we do pray that we would be a church that is marked by a love of truth and a faithful contending for the truth until the day that we pass into glory. And Lord, we do pray that it would never be a dead orthodoxy, but that it would be an orthodoxy which always brings to us spiritual life and zeal and love and kindness and mercy, but an orthodoxy which contends because it is nothing less than the truth of Jesus for which we contend. Lord, grant that it would be so in this church. Lord, it is our earnest prayer that this church here would never be allowed to tolerate any faithless Jezebels in her midst. Lord, our God, it is our desire that this church would be found faithful to the end, faithful until the day of Jesus' return, doing our master's business and none other. Lord, we pray that we would not be like so many of the denominations and so many of the churches in the age in which we live, which have uh, parted from your truth, which in the name of cultural relevancy or being up with the times or following uh, this movement or that intellectual movement have, uh, have, have fled the truth of Jesus. Lord, might it never be true of this church, we pray. O oh, grant to us that we would be found faithful. And that, Lord, that not only would we rule with you, but that we would be given the morning star and find in Jesus Christ himself, the source of all light, the one who is our everlasting happiness and joy. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper, and as we do prepare for this supper at which we, in which we commune with our Lord, we're going to sing hymn.